Fighting Through Podcast, Episode 1, Dunkirk. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. On that fine Sunday morning of September the 3rd, 1939, when at 11am the Prime Minister announced over the wireless that a state of war existed between Great Britain and Germany, there were thousands of men living peaceably in the North Riding of Yorkshire, who never dreamed that in the course of the next six years, fate would lead them to widely scattered regions of the earth. Men from the Dales and from the rich central plain of York, men from the mines of Cleveland and from the industrial town of Middlesbrough, from the market towns of Thursk and Northallerton, and from the seaside towns of Scarborough, Redcar, Whitby and Bridlington, all joined or rejoined the Green Howard family. Those who were too old proudly took up arms in 1940 as members of the Home Guard, ready to face any invader who should dare to attempt to put a foot on Yorkshire soil. Hello, I'm Paul Cheel, son of Bill Cheel, whose Second World War memoirs have been published by Pen and Sword in Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg. The aim of this podcast is to give you the stories behind the story. You'll hear some cracking first-hand memoirs and memories of veterans connected to Dad's war in some way, and much more. You've just heard a bit of narrative from Captain W.A.T. Singe, who wrote a book called The Story of the Green Howards, and the book covers the entire period of the war from 1939 to 45. Before that, you were listening to Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain's Declaration of War speech in September 1939. Dad was listening to that speech live on the radio whilst camping with pals in Devon, and he had to motor back up north quickly in what was his first car to join his regiment, the Green Howards, in Middlesbrough. Dad was in the war from beginning to end, and he was involved in several major conflicts, including Dunkirk, North Africa and D-Day. He was an ordinary soldier who had what I feel was a quite extraordinary war. His war started off at Dunkirk, and that's the subject of this, my very first episode. This is the first chapter in Dad's memoirs. The chapter's called Looking for Bray Dune. May 1940. Britain and her allies were at war with Germany. My B Company was part of the British Expeditionary Force in France. Germany had invaded the country and was now putting pressure on the Allied forces. We had orders to retreat to the coast to a place called Bray Dune, near Dunkirk, in order to evacuate back to England. It seemed to have taken a very long time, 
but after some hours and twelve miles we saw a cluster of buildings in the distance and added a little more haste to our walking. We were surprised that our destination seemed no larger than a seaside village. Eventually we came upon one main road through the centre of the village, rather shabby and uncared for, which was understandable. It looked just like Dodge City, but it was great to us. It was Bray June, and we were very pleased to have sight of it, but other troubles were very soon to descend upon us. We walked down the sand-blown main street, and at the end came to a small promenade overlooking the sea. Not a soul was in sight apart from our lads. We turned left and walked along this narrow promenade. It had a wooden rail along the seaward side, and there was a six-foot drop to the beach. We stood and looked at the sea which could mean our salvation. The other side of that water was England. Oh, that lovely sea, with England just on the other side. How simple. We walked to the end of the promenade, about 200 yards, which led onto deep, soft sand, followed by huge six-foot sandbanks. The sea was about 200 yards away from the high-water mark, and both east and west the beach was very flat. The accompanying sight which greeted us will forever live in our memories. On the beach running both ways, there were many tens of thousands of khaki-clad figures milling around for as far as we could see, but there was nowhere to go. And there were columns of soldiers three deep, going out to sea up to their shoulders, trying to get onto the small boats to take them to England. It was 30th of May. I don't know how, but we made our way to the water's edge and looked out to sea across to the horizon and saw the ships going to Dunkirk further along the coast. We then made our way back to the deep sand dunes in order to gain some protection from the bombing and strafing which was taking place. Many of the boys on the beach were in a sorry state. The Stukas had just been over. One must remember that not all soldiers are hard-bitten individuals, and some of the younger lads showed great emotion. I saw young soldiers just standing, crying their hearts out, and others kneeling in the sand, praying. It's very easy to pass critical remarks about these lads, but we others knew the ordeal these weaker-willed boys were going through, and helped them as much as we could during their emotional and distressing ordeal, as medical help was a very scarce thing on the beaches. So much had been bottled up inside these young soldiers that at last the bubble had burst, and it was uncontrollable. Dead soldiers and those badly wounded lay all over the place, and many of the wounded would die. It was tragic to see life ebbing away from young, healthy lads, and we could not do a thing about it. It was heartbreaking. What few stretcher-bearers there were always gave of their best. They were extraordinary. How does one quantify devotion to duty under the conditions which prevailed in those days? The folk at home could not possibly have had any idea what their boys were going through. There was no panic, just haste. We joined this mass of tired and hungry lads, 
Amidst all this tragedy, the Stukas would return, machine-gunning the full length of the thousands of men. They could not miss, and a swathe of dead and wounded would be left behind. Really, it was awful. Many of us fired our rifles at the planes, but they were useless. Nobody can imagine what it's like to be bombed by a German Stuka. They came out of the sky, screaming straight down, then dropped their bombs and pulled up into the sky again. I don't know why we ran. It was just instinct, I suppose. Near the shoreline, one boy of about twenty not far from me had his stomach ripped open, and he was fighting to live, asking for his mum and crying. A few of us went to him, but he was too bad for us to help. Blood was everywhere. That poor boy soon died out of pain to join his mates. It's the most dreadful experience to see a comrade killed in such a way. Some young lads who had lost their nerve went crazy and lay on the sand crying. Others knelt and prayed. Mind you, I'm sure we all prayed in our own way. No one, of course, could help behaving like this. It was just because of the trauma they'd endured and at last given way to their feelings. The near impossibility of getting back to England left many of us rather stunned as it just did not look possible. Our lads, or what was left of our battalion, stuck together among the dunes to obtain some protection from the bombing and strafing. We'd had nothing to eat except hard tack biscuits and bully beef. We hadn't had a hot meal for God knows how long, and the lads who usually shaved looked really haggard. None of us could see any sign of the 23rd Divisional Assembly area, and nobody seemed to know what to do for the best. Then the planes came over again, causing more deaths. A sleepless night was ahead of us. There was no plan of action, and even the officers seemed to be showing signs of tension. At about midnight we heard a plane coming, but it was not a bomber. It was dropping parachute flares, and suddenly it was as light as day, and eerie, and fluorescent. Towards Dunkirk there were dozens of fires caused by burning vehicles and the flames from the burning oil storage tanks lit up the clouds. Very quickly, the Stuckers came over, doing their killing, flying the full length of the beach, and we dug in even deeper into the sand. Lads on the beach were running all over the place, but there was nowhere to go. I don't know why God was allowing this to happen. The morning eventually came, and we were very cold, hungry and utterly miserable. But there was no let-up from our discomfort. I was beside Major Petch, and he said, Come along, Cheel. I want to see if I can find somebody in authority to give guidance to us. From our elevated positions among the sand dunes, we could see more so the thousands of soldiers on the beaches. Most of them, at this early hour, were lying around on the sand, certainly wondering what the day would bring. It would take a miracle for us all to be lifted off. I can't recall seeing any signs of despondency, though. After all, we were soldiers, even if we were somewhat dishevelled, and only showed natural tendencies to want to get out of the predicament we now found ourselves in. Oh, for a mess tin full of tea! and for most of the lads, a woodbine cigarette. Around 1100 hours, it looked as though officers on the beach were trying to organise the men. 
The Major and I went along the beach to try and find somebody with news of what was happening about the evacuation. We'd walked about one mile when we met our divisional commander, Major General Herbert. He was collecting a column of our 23rd Division in order to proceed to Dunkirk to try and get on a boat, since there was no chance of being evacuated if we stayed where we were. He told Major Petch to collect his lads and join the column with utmost urgency. We hurried back to where our company was waiting to give them the news. In the distance we could see what must be Dunkirk. The five miles walk there, exhausted as we were, seemed like fifty on the soft sand, which played havoc with tired legs. Ahead of us I could see the oil tanks with black smoke and flames pouring from them after they'd been bombed. We could see ships out at sea making their way from Dunkirk to England and could also see the dive bombers after the ships. To our horror, many other ships had been sunk, their funnels and superstructures sticking out of the water. It was a ship's graveyard and it looked dreadful. Eventually, our column reached the pier, or East Mall as it was called, and we waited in a long queue until it was possible for us to board a ship. Really, it's almost unbelievable, but even when we were attacked by planes, we didn't move in case we lost our place in the column. The mole was a wooden jetty, only about five feet wide and 1,400 yards long. It was never supposed to have large ships berth alongside. Thousands of men had formed queues leading down into the sea and were in the water up to their shoulders, doing their utmost to get onto one of the small boats which very often capsized. Beachmasters had a very difficult task keeping some semblance of order, but by and large the lads just waited patiently for their turn to come until the planes came over. Those in the water just ignored the bombs. <laughs> Where could they run? And anyway, the sea absorbed a lot of the blast. There was always that hot-headed lad who thought he had more right to get away, but the officers only had to draw a revolver, and they calmed down and accepted the inevitable. In the prevailing mood of many of the men, it was common to see groups of soldiers kneeling down, being led by a padre in prayer. There, by the side of the jetty, a ship was waiting to be loaded with human cargo. We walked along the wooden pier and back came the planes, it seemed never-ending, trying to bomb our ship, but without success. We walked along for about half a mile to the ship we'd be boarding. Miraculously, the mole was still intact, but there was a six-foot gap in the planking where a bomb had gone through without exploding, and loose planks had been put across. Some lads in their desperate hurry chose to jump the gap with their full kit on, Luckily, none fell into the water. Another thirty yards, and we came to our ship. At the top end of a gangway stood an officer, counting soldiers as they went aboard. The ship was a ferry ship called the Lady of Man. How could I forget that name? How lucky we considered ourselves to be. Out of all those thousands of men, we were being given the opportunity to be evacuated. It was almost impossible for men of the same companies to stay together, but that was no consequence at a time like this. The ferry was fast becoming packed with grateful lads. The captain would know how many men the ship could carry, 
but God alone knows what would have happened had a bomb hit us. I was lucky enough to be on deck to see what was happening and it must have been very claustrophobic down below deck. I kept my eyes on the nearest Carly float in case the worst happened. The fact that we'd managed to get on a boat was no guarantee that we'd reach England because the Luftwaffe was doing its utmost to prevent us. As the ship was filling up, a padre came and stood on a ladder, called for silence and prayed for our deliverance to England. At last, packed like sardines, the ship started to tremble and so very slowly we pulled away from the mole. It was 1800 hours. Being a little taller than many of the lads enabled me to have a panoramic view of the whole length of the beach. How many of those boys would get back to England, and how many would be killed or taken prisoner? The beach was as crowded as ever, then suddenly I saw a German fighter plane skimming above them, firing cannons. It reminded me of a row of dominoes being knocked down from one end. The dense black smoke from the blazing oil storage tanks still reached far into the sky. There was another loaded ship about one mile ahead of us, and suddenly I heard the Stukas returning, screaming down almost vertically. I saw bombs leaving one of the planes, and was certain our time had come, and that this was the end. My thoughts were mixed with prayer and despair as I prepared for what I thought was inevitable. How the heck did it all come to this? As the bombs came tumbling out of the sky towards us, my life flashed before me, and in an instant I relived every moment of my time since just before the war, when life had seemed so good. That's the end of the chapter. Dad obviously did get back to England, but to discover how, listen in to future episodes. But to find out the full details, you'll need to buy his book, Fighting Through from Dunkirk to Hamburg, which has over 100 five-star reviews on Amazon. If you carry on listening to this podcast, you're in for a feast of wartime recollections from veteran memoirs and interviews. There's the letters of Major Petch, Dad's commander at Dunkirk. The writings of Captain Tom Woods of the Lady of Man, the ship which rescued Dad and his comrades from the Dunkirk beaches. There's the whole backstory to Dad's best pre-war pal, Don Savage, who died tragically as rear gunner in a Lancaster, Lily Mars. There's an interview with another Lancaster rear gunner, a Lancaster pilot, and a Normandy tank commander, as well as a fantastic series of interviews with a veteran from Dad's very own battalion, the 6th Green Howards. There's a gripping account from Sergeant Brian Moss, the engineer who blew up the famous anti-tank ditch at the Battle of Wadi Akris in North Africa. With over 50 episodes, the podcast is a fantastic way to immerse yourself in the Second World War and more. All great unpublished history, just there for the listening. Each episode is accompanied by full show notes, which includes transcripts and photographs. Visit fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk or search in your favourite podcast player. 
And just to whet your appetite, here's a couple of promos I've produced for the show, which gives you a brief insight into some of the future offerings. There were columns of soldiers trying to get onto the small boats. That's your more frightening experience, Alan. 25 yards, ramp going down, now. They did anything to get a couple of days sick. They used to put the finger on the line and let one of the lads hit it with a hammer. We hurled ourselves upon one another with a theory that afterwards we could not understand. Yeah, we crashed landed in the field. Imagine the shock when the pick clangs against steel. You wonder if you've started the clock ticking. <laughs> Fighting through podcast. Great unpublished history. Hello, I'm Paul, and this is 96-year-old World War II tank Captain Stan Perry. Closest I did shoot a German at about three yards. Um, we actually got the sniper who shot me, incidentally. My gunner suddenly shot one. I said, Christ, what have you done? I said, Geneva Convention, they're prisoners of war. Kicked the door open, saw a movement, shot. This is the Fighting Through Podcast. Great unpublished history. Thank you for listening. Please do subscribe for free forever to the series via your listening app of choice. There are convenient links to many popular apps on the website, fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk. In the next episode, there are three absolutely riveting accounts of the war in North Africa with Monty's 8th Army. Download episode 2, Wadi Akarit, World War II's own Charge of the Light Brigade. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time, I'm Paul Cheel saying... Bye-bye now.